And we'll be here for a couple of weeks, maybe a month or so, and uh, going through this. But I hope you've been following through the book of Romans. Not all of you were here when we started the book of Romans. Many of you have come in uh, since we started it. But it's pretty much either you can do one of two things. You can pick up where we're at because I kind of give a review of it every so often just to kind of bring everybody up to speed. I think that's one of the things in studying the Bible that we, we fail to do. I know in my own life, uh, review is such an important part uh, of what I try to do in my Bible. You know, the longer you get in your Bible and the more you study, uh, obviously, you, somebody says the more you learn, and that may be true, but also along with that, uh, the more you forget. And it's something that you just have to be able to uh, uh, have some kind of system by which you uh, you know, review. And I spend my week, you know, a lot of my week when I spend studying things, uh, I, I say probably half my week I spend uh, reviewing the things that I've already learned, you know, just trying to put it all and keep it in perspective. So uh, re review is very important when it comes to your Bible. And uh, you're going to find that learning your Bible is like a gigantic balancing act. You've got to kind of balance everything with what you're learning, but with what you've already learned. And obviously, it doesn't do you any good to learn new things if you're forgetting the old things. You've got to kind of work it out that way. So, you know that as we've been coming through the book of Romans, we have been spending some, uh, a lot of time explaining uh, a lot of the complicated things. I hope that you're getting them down in your Bible, you know, on a weekly basis uh, so that you can kind of stay up with it. Romans is a book you have to learn. That's all there is to it. And uh, we, have a, we have a lot of people in our church who really have a desire to learn the Bible. And I think that's a, a great uh, uh, commentary on, on you and our church. But you've always got to remember that, you know, when you're learning the Bible and putting the Bible together, you've got to stay with what you're learning and, and, and put it in as you go. And in Romans chapter 10 now, we finished Romans chapter 9 last week. Romans chapter 10 now, we're going to be going and talking about God's call to the Gentile. You remember last week, uh, as we were coming down uh, through the last part of chapter 9, I think it was verse 30 and 31, if I remember, where he's talking about that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have now attained the righteousness. Remember when I told you that? And I explained that from the aspect that... Uh, the Old Testament nation of Israel, they had everything that God wanted them. They were God's nation. God gave them the law. God gave them everything they needed to become the, the component by which in the Old Testament God was going to reach the world. And uh, the Gentiles in the Old Testament, they were, uh, they, were, they were not very well thought of. In fact, in the Old Testament, Gentiles are looked at as dogs. And uh, the Jews wanted nothing to do with them, and uh, they didn't have any law. They didn't have any righteousness anywhere like that the Jews did. And, of course, if a Gentile wanted to get something from God, he had to get it through the nation of Israel, literally become a Jewish proselyte. So he was talking about the fact that how in the world did the Jews, who had everything, how in the world did they lose that, and then the Gentiles, who had nothing, suddenly now have become the ones that have obtained uh, the grace and the mercy that God has for them. And we learned that answer last, last time, didn't we? 
We talked about how that Jesus Christ sent, uh, God sent Jesus Christ to the nation of Israel. We talked about how that Israel was a, was a, uh, a building of live, li, live, uh, uh, lively stones. Uh, uh, and God had a chief cornerstone. And that chief cornerstone, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent that chief cornerstone to the nation of Israel. And, of course, they rejected him. We saw last week that when they rejected him, that rock that becomes God became the rock of offense. Once it became a rock of offense, the Bible says then that that stone became a stumbling stone for Israel. And that's really why the Jews rejected Jesus Christ. I don't know, some of you in Bible Institute probably know this, uh, or some of you guys that have been, gals have been studying the Bible for a while, but you can actually trace that through the New Testament. You'll find in the book of Matthew that when Christ comes to the nation of Israel, in Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, He presents to the nation of Israel every credential that He needs to have to show them who He is. I mean, you can literally walk this thing all the way through the Gospel of Matthew and see how it actually happens. In Matthew chapter 1 through chapter 12, He is absolutely, in every chapter, giving Israel everything that He needs to give them that they should have known who He was. And of course, in Matthew chapter 12, they make what we commonly call today the unpardonable sin. A lot of, a lot of false teachers like to take what Israel did in Matthew chapter 12 and try to put it into your life and my life, so they call it the unpardonable sin. First of all, it's never called the unpardonable sin in the Bible. But here's what Israel did. Israel took a stand against the Lord Jesus Christ. And what they said in Matthew chapter 12 was that the Spirit, that the Spirit by which Christ was doing all His miracles was the Spirit of Beelzebub, Spirit of the devil. When they said that, immediately in Matthew chapter 13, everything changes. As long as the nation of Israel held that position that that the spirit by which God was doing the miracles that He was doing was the spirit of the devil, the door was shut. And that's why in Matthew chapter 13, 14, 15, and right up through the end of the chapter, they goes into what we call parables. Parables in the Bible are written that Israel cannot find the truth about what God has come to do. And they went into parables because they rejected the truth that God gave them. And if you understand that, you begin to see how that God sent them the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. That chief cornerstone to Israel became an offense, the rock of offense. And when they, when they took that attitude toward Christ, then it became a stumbling stone. And they tripped over it. And of course, now what we've got in Romans chapter 10, putting it all together now, is Romans chapter 10, we know that once Israel took that position and they crucified the Messiah. We talked about this last week in that great parable in Matthew chapter 21. Once we know that took place and once that transpired, then God puts the nation of Israel on the back burner. And He turns His attention to the Gentile nations. And that's what we're talking about now in Romans chapter 10. Here's what I showed you. I showed you that Romans chapter 9 shows you, I told you first of all that Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11 are the three chapters in the book of Romans when Paul lays out for you and for me what God is doing with the Gentiles. In chapter 9 now, we clearly understand. We understand now how that Christ became a stumbling stone, how that Christ uh, became a rock of offense to the nation of Israel. And once that happened, God took what He had for Israel, and now He's given it to the Gentiles. Now, we know that God's not finished with the nation of Israel. We know because 
uh, you know, we're, we're Bible students. We know that there's a tribulation period coming, and we know that there's a second coming, and there's a restoration of the nation of Israel. That's Revelation chapter 11. But right now we're going to enter into probably the single greatest chapter in the Bible that talks about Gentiles. And by the way, you and I are Gentiles this morning. It talks about Gentiles receiving Christ as their own personal Savior. And uh, it's, a, it's a great chapter. And when Israel stumbled at God's rock, that rock became a rock of offense and became a stumbling stone. And then God takes the gospel and takes the righteousness which He had for Israel, and then He gives it to you and me in the church. And then, as we've studied in our Bible basics class, remember I told you that there's two components that God worked through. In the Old Testament, He worked through the nation of Israel, all right? They rejected Him, they're out. Now He turns His attention to the New Testament, to the Gentiles, me and you, in the church. And when you get saved in your life, if you haven't been saved, uh, you need to be saved. But if you are saved this morning, the moment you got saved, you become part of Christ's body, His church. It's a spiritual church. And that church now is what God uses to work through uh, and reach people in the New Testament church age. Now, we've looked at some things uh, about numbers in the Bible. And, uh, I, uh, you know, there's certain numbers in the Bible, and we've not made a big deal about this, but I've kind of shown them to you as we've come through the book of Romans. There, there, there's a study in the Bible called Bible numerology. And certain numbers, not every number, but certain numbers always mean certain things in the Bible. And uh, it's a way that you determine the context of things. And I've showed you how that God is perfect, right? We know that He's perfect, so everything that He does, He does by a system of sevens. Because seven in the Bible is a number of perfection. We talked about number three a couple of weeks ago being the number of completeness. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ. How three is the completeness of everything. And God, we talked about this on a Thursday night, how God, I think it was a night we went through atomic structure, how God made everything after a pattern of Himself. I've told you before, we've seen it, how that the number 40 is the number of, t- of testing in the Bible. Jesus is tested in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food. Moses fasts 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah fasts 40 days and 40 nights. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights in Noah's day. And uh, all of that worked its way down. I showed you how that the number of 12 is always dealing with the nation of Israel. And I think it was last week or the week before last, I showed you how that the number 5 is always the number of death when you find it in the Bible, or it represents the number of death. Well, when it comes to the Gentiles, the number 10 is your number. Because the number 10 in your Bible will always represent Gentiles. And you'll find that uh, 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 in Genesis chapter 10, you'll find a man named Noah. Noah is called the father of the Gentiles, and lo and behold, he's in Genesis chapter 10. And if you count up the genealogies from Adam, from Adam up to Noah, you've got 10, 10 generations. 10 is the number of the Gentiles. The first Gentile kingdom is found in Genesis chapter 10. Verse 10, by the way. Uh, Genesis chapter 10, you'll find the first Gentile genealogy. When Abraham, remember we talked about this a Thursday night a couple of times back, a couple of months back, when Abraham went out to get, sent Eleazar out to get a bride for Isaac, his son. Remember that story? And he gets Rebecca. Well, Rebecca's a Gentile. And that's a picture, and we talked about that, is a picture of, of God, of the father, Abraham, sending out Eleazar, the Holy Spirit of God, looking for a bride for his son Isaac, a type of Christ. But Rebekah is a Gentile, see? So it's a beautiful picture of the church age. 
You know how many camels he took with him? I didn't say packs of camels. I said camels. He took 10. He took 10. He took 10. John chapter 10 talks about Gentile sheep. The Bible says they're not of this fold. And the last Gentile kingdom found in, in Genesis, uh, in Revelation chapter uh, uh, 19 and 20, uh, 18, 17, 18, all down through there, is represented by 10 kings and 10 toes of Daniel's image. In Acts chapter 10, it's where the gospel officially goes to the Gentiles. Because the first Gentile in your Bible, uh, where it is a, it, it, right there in front of you, where the gospel is clearly went, goes to Cornelius. And he's an Italian. So 10 in your Bible is, is going to be a number of the Gentiles. So it's no, it's no great thing that when we get to Romans chapter 10, we find that that chapter represents salvation going to the Gentiles in the church age after Israel's rejection at the crucifixion, and they make Christ the rock of offense. You know, there's two books in the Bible, and you need to know this. My goal in time, I have many goals for, for you. Uh, you know, building people uh, is something that it takes time and it has a lot of dimensions to it. But I have a lot of plans for, for many of you, most of you. Uh, some of you won't maybe ever realize those plans. But I want you in time to be able to be very confident in dealing with somebody about their soul. Uh, you never know when God is going to drop you into a scenario where uh, He wants you to be the person who, who, who leads that person to Christ or shows that person how to be saved. And of course, you need to know what you're doing to be able to do that. There's two basic books in your Bible that really lay out salvation. And the first one is the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is important because the Gospel of John portrays Christ as the Son of God. It's in Gospel John where we have the story of Nicodemus who he says you must be born again. It's in the Gospel of John where it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's a great verse to give somebody about being saved. It's John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same as in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him and not without Him not anything was made with hate. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. See? It all lays itself out. Now, the other book is Romans. Those two books are very clearly the two greatest books that talk about salvation. I think the book of John lays it out and shows you Christ coming as your Savior, and then the book of Romans shows you how to get saved. That's how I look at it, anyhow. You know, we have a, you don't hear much anymore. There used to be a track, and I thought it was one of the greatest tracks, and I've never seen them out here, but there was a track place that put them out years ago. When I lived in Ohio some 35, 40 years ago, it was a standard track that I used all the time. And it was a little track, and it simply said, God's simple plan of salvation. And that track was based on the book of Romans. And it basically uh, brings you through. The people who've been around for a while, we, we have the little names for things. And we talk about when you win somebody to Christ, we talk about the Romans road, you know, walking down the Romans road. And that simply means that you take somebody who's a sinner and needs to be saved and walk them through Romans. You start in Romans chapter 3 and you show them that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none that do it good, no, not one. All of our righteousness, filthy rags, and the sight of the Lord God. And then you go to Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And then you go to Romans 10. And in Romans 10, it, it shows you the two components. Romans 10 shows you the two components or the two aspects it takes for a Gentile to be saved in the church age. 
He said, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Those are the two aspects. And we're not going to get into that today, but I'm showing you. We'll get into that as we go. A little while back, we, I had some cards printed up uh, that we gave people that had all the verses and a kind of a how-to win somebody to Christ. I'm going to have some more of them printed up when we get a little farther into the book of Romans, because I want you to learn how to be able to do this. And uh, we've got some great people in our church, uh, some of the guys and the gals, that could really uh, take you, if you want to, in small groups and show you how to do that and really uh, get your expertise up on winning somebody to Christ. But it's something that just comes in time. Now let's read Romans chapter 10 here, now that we've got an understanding about it. And I got a little background on it. We ain't going to get far today, probably the first couple of verses here. But uh, let's look at it here in, in Romans chapter 10. He says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And, Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. And, Lord, we just thank you for uh, everything that you've given us. And, Lord, I stand this morning uh, in awe of how good you are to us and all of the things that you've uh, given to us and how good you've taken care of us. And most of all, Father, you know, I thank you for the Bible, because without that, we wouldn't have anything. But, Lord, beyond that, I thank you for the people that you brought to this church. And, Lord, I, I, many of them, if not most of them, want to know the Bible, and they really want to do what God wants them to do. And, Lord, I thank you and praise you now for all that you do and all you're going to do today. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. You know, this church was paid... I think a great compliment last week with somebody I talked to that really is not in our church, but uh, had been around our church and seen some things, got to know some of you and, and talked to some of you and, and kind of looked at what we were doing. And he, they pulled me aside and they said, you know what, uh, the amazing thing about your church that I've seen, he says, and I've been in churches all my life. He says, I've been in church all my life and I don't know one-tenth of the Bible that, that your people know in your church. And he said, the bottom line is, he says, your people not only know the Bible, but they, 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 they know how to, they, know how to they, they, they love the Bible. They, it's not something that they go to church and it's all right, I got to go because if I don't, the preacher will be on my back, you know, or mom and dad will make me go. They go because they want to. And he says, for the most part, he says, for people I've seen anyhow, not only do they, do they love it, not only do they know it, but they also seem to live it. And I thought to myself, you know, first thought in my mind is, well, I'm glad you haven't met some of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad the Holy Spirit of God moved you through the right people. But, uh, and you got that in every church, you know. But the bottom line is this. That's a great compliment for you. That's a great compliment for you. And that, that says something about you as an individual who make up this body. Because my goal for you, my goal for you is to, is to help you uh, get to that point in your life where God really uses you in a way that is unique. I used to hear, uh, you're going to hear a lot of throwback things for, that, I, that I was taught with today as we come through this. Oh, Mel Shabaka, my father and Lord, he used to say this. He used to say that if your Christianity is not contagious, then it's contaminated. And boy, that's, that's so true. He, he, that's so true. 
When I grew up, the uh, Zig Ziglar, everybody know who Zig Ziglar is, the great motivational speaker? Zig Ziglar back then was, was going around and, and making millions of dollars by holding seminars. And uh, he would get up and he would say, he'd say this. He would say, you will be exactly five years from today the same person you are except for the books you read and the people you meet. And that was his opening to get people to become people conscious, become to read more. And, and, I, and I understand what he's saying. <laughs> Mal Sabaka took that phrase and brought it back into a biblical perspective. And he, he, I remember the Sunday he did it. He got up and he said, You will be exactly five years from today who you are today except for the book that you read and the person that you know, the Lord Jesus Christ, see? And I, I, my whole life was filled growing up with things like that that just always kept my perspective. And when I come to Romans chapter 10, you know, uh, I, I look at verse 2 and it, and it says, having a zeal but not according to knowledge. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. What Paul does here is he begins this chapter with showing us what Israel's problem was as a nation. And it makes the parallel to what the Gentiles' problems are going to be to find Christ. And in verse 2, he makes an incredible statement that every Christian, every pastor, uh, needs to see and understand. And that is the aspect of having a zeal, but not according to knowledge. I'm going to talk to you about that today and probably next week too as we, we kind of work this thing out. You know, we, we think of that concept, we think of, you know, we think of, of other false religions. I mean, the Jews themselves. I don't know if you know it or not, but the word zeal comes from the word zealots. And a zealot, back in the Bible time, was a, was a group of Jews. And they were very nationalistic in their approach to the nation of Israel. Not Christ, but the nation of Israel. And they hated the Roman Empire. They were kind of like your Randy Weavers <laughs> of today. Remember Randy Weaver? <laughs> the guy out there in the place that shot his wife. or they didn't, they Held up for the FBI. You know, was a, one of those survivalist type guys. And they were a lot like that. They were, they were very nationalistically proud of being Jews, and they hated the Roman Empire. And they were called zealots because they had a zeal. They would try to disrupt the Roman Empire any way they could. And so they got the word zealot, which we get our word zeal. And you think, when you think of the word, uh, the concept of zeal not according to knowledge, you usually put it in the context of, of false religions. I mean, the Muslim faith is, is definitely a misguided zeal. I mean, their idea of winning the world to Christ and to their way of thinking is killing everybody that's a non-believer. Say, that's good zeal, but it's not according to knowledge in the Bible, anyhow. I remember, I remember back in the Vietnam days, you know, when uh, the, uh, over in the Vietnam, uh, which their primary religion is Buddhism. And during that time, the Buddhist monks were very, very, very seriously being persecuted. They had put in a, a dictator over there. We did, the CIA did. And uh, by the name of Diem. And Diem was, was persecuting all of the Buddhist uh, monks and the churches and all of the Buddhist people. And you know, you, you probably were not old enough. Some of you folks are old enough to remember. But the Buddhist monks in protest would go out in the street, sit down in the street, pour gasoline on themselves, and then light themselves off and, and burn because of the fact they wanted to draw attention to the persecution that they were going through. Now that is definitely a zeal. They, 
not according to knowledge. But that's, that's what we look at, see? I mean, we'd always laugh and make jokes at Jehovah Witnesses. And, you know, and, uh, you know, the, and, 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 but I'll tell you what, you'll have to look a long time before you find somebody that's got more zeal than they got. It's wrong zeal and it's misguided zeal and it's not doing anything to get them to heaven because they think that they, you know, they got to knock on a hundred doors a day to go to heaven every day. And that just isn't the way it works. Mormons are the same way. Every false religion we think of, you know, but the bottom line and the answer to that is in verse 3. It says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, here it comes, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. You know what the righteousness of God is in the Bible? Salvation, being saved. And what he's saying here that people who have a zeal according to knowledge, other religions, they develop their own self-righteousness, but they don't submit themselves to God's righteousness. In other words, they try to do something to go to heaven. A, a, a Muslim thinks that if he dies in jihad, he goes to heaven and gets 80 virgins. Well, I get your morales high with the troops, man, if that's the case, you see. I mean, but, 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 that, but that's, that's a zeal not according to knowledge. I mean, you know, Jehovah Witness, you know, you know why you should be nice to Jehovah Witnesses? And I know that, you know, we all, you know, we, have a, we like to rag on Jehovah Witnesses. But you know why you ought to be really nice to a Jehovah Witness? Because when you're mean to a Jehovah Witness, I've known Christians that let the dogs out on them, you know. I've known Christians that threw water on them, you know. I would never do that. Not that they don't deserve it. But I wouldn't do that. Do you know why I wouldn't do that? Because the Jehovah Witnesses taught from the time he becomes a little J.W. to a big J.W. that he's in the tribulation period. He believes that right now. So when you're mean to him, he just reinforces the fact that he's right because he's been told that he's in the tribulation period and he's going to be persecuted. And, uh, and so he, he enjoys it. You help him by being mean to him. What you want to do is you want to be nice to him. I mean, as nice as you can be. I mean, you don't want to, you know, give him a room upstairs and, and, and but, you, but you don't want to, you don't, you got to understand what you're dealing with. But it's all the same. We don't ever think too much about God's people and how this verse applies to us. And I want to talk to you about it today. And this church is right now where you need to hear this, even though we don't really have a problem with this, it's something that you need to know and understand. Now, when I read 10.1, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that uh, they might be saved. You know, I'm a lot like Paul in one sense. I, I wish I could be like Paul in everything in his life. I think he's the model for uh, what a New Testament Christian should be. But I'm not. But I am like him in one point. And that point is the fact that I understand his burden that he had for the nation of Israel. Uh, and and it, shows, it shows me uh, in these opening statements how he was so burdened for the nation of Israel. You know why? Paul's a unique individual. Paul is a really unique individual. You know why he's such a good picture of you and me? I'll tell you why. Because Paul, first of all, when Paul was around, there was no New Testament Bible. We get the idea, you know, that he's walking through the book of Acts and say, okay, you know, it's 8 o'clock, I'm going to go to bed and see, what am I supposed to do tomorrow? Let's look at Acts 9 and see what I'm supposed to do tomorrow. No, he didn't have no Bible. He had an Old Testament. Now, here's what we know about Paul. Bible says that he, nobody probably knew the Old Testament law better than him. He was taught by one of the greatest 
law teachers of his time. And he, he's, a, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's, he's, a, he's a Jew. And he was trained in the traditions of the law and the law of Moses and the Old Testament. There's probably nobody that knows it better than he did. Then on top of that, God took him for, and you know, we studied this in Institute. When you come through the book of Acts, Paul's missing for about eight or nine years. And during that time, God's got him alone someplace. And we know he's three and a half years in Arabia. You know what's in Arabia? Mount Sinai. That's where God met with Moses. And you know what God's doing in that time that he's missing? He's filling him in on what his job is and what the New Testament needs to be done and what he needs to do as far as God's calling in his life to take the gospel to the Gentiles. You know why Paul represents you and me such a way? And you know why he's such a good model? Because he's like you and me. You got the Old Testament. You ought to be an expert in it. You also got the revelation of God in the New Testament. You ought to be an expert in that. You see how Paul balances it out? He has the Old Testament he's an expert in, and then he has the New Testament, the revelation from God that God gave him personally. He's a balance between the two. He has something that nobody else has on planet Earth at that time. He has a complete knowledge of the Old Testament and a complete knowledge of the New Testament revelation as far as God wants him to do to the Gentiles. And in that he's a picture of you and me. You have a Bible there, you have an Old Testament, you have a New Testament. You ought to be an expert in the law of God of how it pertains to the nation of Israel, and then you ought to be an expert of how it pertains to the body of Christ in the New Testament under grace for you and me. See? He's such a great picture of that. And here's his problem, and this is my problem. His problem is he has such a desire and a burden for the nation of Israel. You know why? Because he knows, knowing what he knows, he knows now the plan of God for Israel. You see, Paul once persecuted the Jews. He, he rested them, had them killed. And now in a moment on the road to Damascus, God turned his world around and now God has given him uh, the calling to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And now he stands there in his life understanding God's plan for the nation of Israel, understanding God's plan for the church, but also realizing that his own people have missed completely and totally everything that God had for them. He's standing there with a burden knowing that his people, the nation of Israel, had sold their birthright spiritually to what God wanted them to do. And many times, I understand that feeling because as a pastor, you look at people who have the potential. Some of you have great potential to be used of God. You really do. Some of you, I see those things that I look for in people's lives. Not everybody has them. We live in a day and age today which it's really hard to find men and women who really, really, really want to give their lives to God. Harder yet is finding people who have the character qualities to be able to give their life to God. Because I'm going to tell you, we've now in this country been, what, four or five generations without a Bible? Four or five generations where moms and dads don't raise their kids toward the Word of God or take them to church at all? Four or five generations where the things of God in our own country and in our own society and our own families have just dissipated in, in the thin air. And we now look at generations of kids that are coming out that have no concept of God. I was talking to a young teenager the other day. And, you know, and we you're just talking with him. And I asked him, I said, uh, uh, he went to, went to Raytown South High School. A nice kid, about 17 years old. And we just got in a conversation. And I asked him, I asked him, I asked him if, you know, just my own little test, you know. I asked him, I said, what do you know about history? And he said, well, I don't know. I don't know what I learned in school. And I asked him, I says, who was Mussolini? 
He didn't have a clue. Who, I mean, we're talking about 60 years ago. He didn't know anything about World War II. He hardly knew anything about Vietnam, just the fact that he had an uncle that fought in it at some point. Nothing. Not a thing about what's going on around. I asked him if he knew who the, who the, who the vice president of the United States was. He got that one right. I asked him who Nancy Pelosi was. Had no clue. I'm not sure that's a bad thing, but anyway, he had no clue. And I, and I, I thought to myself, this is the problem. And I asked him about God. He had no concept about God. He had no inkling of an idea about anything that would be meaningful in knowing about God. God was an abstract concept. You know why? Because he's raised in a family which lives in a city, which is in a country, which is in a world where God is the last thing anybody wants to talk about today. And it's a tragedy. And I see so many times the burden that Paul had, I understand that. Because I see God's people today who have the ability to really be used of God, the ability to do something for God, and yet there's absolutely no desire in any way, shape, or form. And it, it's, it's uh, God's people today, many of them, and it's so frustrating, have basically sold their birthright as far as their millennial inheritance is concerned. And I understand. I, I'm the, you know, just as, just as, just as Christianity today is not going to change the way the country is, and this country is not going to change the way the world is, I am not going to change Christianity back. I realized, I gave up a long time ago thinking that, that, that the, other than working one-on-one -on -one with somebody, I learned very early in my ministry that you can't make somebody do what's right that does not want to. And you are wasting your time to try. But oh, I like Paul. I look at God's people. I look at God's people and I think to myself, what a tragedy. What an absolute tragedy to be saved and then to waste your life. To be a great ball player or a great this or a great that or a great golfer or a great hunter or a great fisherman or a great businessman or a great career person. To have all the success in that and then to lose track of the fundamental concept of why God saved you. And losing the fact of a wasted life in the, in the light of God's plan for your life. You know, I think that's probably in pastoring. And some of you young guys down the line, as you, if you move into the pastoring, which I'm sure some of you will, I think that you're going to find that that probably is the single most frustrating thing that you have to deal with. You know, I, uh, pastoring to me, uh, I've never fit into the mold of being a pastor in the world sense. All my life, I've been out of sync with what the Christian world would call pastoring. I, I don't do, thank you, I don't do, I don't do administrative things very well. I'm not a very good administrator. And I don't ever claim to be. Now, I, you know, I'm not the, my only, my claim to fame is I'm not the smartest guy in the world. But I am the fastest one in the slow class, you see. And I learned what my limitations were very early. I don't do administrative things well. So you know what I do? I surround myself with people who do that for me that I don't have to do it. I, I, don't, I don't plan events well, social events. I mean, I, I really don't. So what do I do? I surround myself with people who have great ideas about fun things to do. 
And I just, you know, I, I realize that I have those limitations. I, I, I just do. I'm not good at keeping books or keeping records or, or I never have been. That's not been my thing. Uh, it's, it's, it, that's, that, so I find other people that are able to do that. I found in ministry very early in, li- in, in life and in, in pastoring. And there were two men in my life that really made me what I am today as far as a pastor. You can decide if that's good or bad. But they are, they, and one of them taught me how to do the ministry right, and the other one taught me how to do the ministry wrong. Now, to me, you see, I don't get on this side with the right guy and look at the guy that taught it wrong and, and think what a terrible thing. I think it's a tragedy that that's where that had to go, but the bottom line is I'm thankful for both of those men in my life because they gave me the balance that I feel that is so lacking today in in the ministry. But I learned very quickly, and I have seen it all. I've seen it all. I've seen the corruption. I've seen the conspiring. I've seen the, I, I, in the ministry and in pastoring, you, you know what? To do it in the system by which the system is, you have to play a certain game. There's a lot of pretend stuff that goes on, a lot of political stuff that goes on, a lot of rock the boat, don't rock the boat kind of stuff. And you know what? I have never been good at playing the game. I have gotten in more trouble in my life in the ministry just because of the fact that, and, and I don't, and I don't, I, I'd like to stand up here and say, well, I won't do it. I don't know that I wouldn't do it. I just don't know how to do it. It's never come natural for me. I remember one time, I'll give you an example. This has been years ago. One time years ago, we, uh, Thomas Nelson, who makes the, all the big publishing company. Well, he might be dead by now. I don't know. But back in this was probably in the early 80s. He came to Kansas City. And they were pushing their new King James Bible. And they called all the pastors of the city together. And there was a, there was a, there was a, 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 a crowd of pastors, probably two, 3,000 guys. And you know what? And he's up there and he's talking about, he's up there and he's talking about how much he loves the Bible and how much the Word of God is the backbone of, 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 of Christianity, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And everybody's down there. They are buying this like, like somebody's cutting off salami and passing it out to a starving man. Now, I, I, again, I, I did my homework on Thomas Nelson. Thomas Nelson were printing, printing Bibles for the Jehovah Witnesses at the same time. They were presenting, printing Bibles for the Mormons at the same time. And now his pitch is, he's up here before these fundamental Baptist preachers. And he's telling them this spiel that how that they, Thomas Nelson loves the Word of God and we stand behind the Word of God and, and we, this is our, you know what, in the Bible, you know. And, and then he lays that thing out and everybody's just rocking and rolling and going crazy. And then he, he opens up the forum and he says, is there any question? Woo. And the guy comes over with a microphone and he says, yes, what's your question? I said, I really appreciated what you said today, but I asked you a question. Don't you print Jehovah Witness Bibles? Don't you print Mormon Bibles? Do you say the same thing when you go there about their Bibles that you said here about this one? Now, you'd have thought everybody would have been happy with me. You would have thought that 3,000 pastors would have said, yeah, no. You know why? Because I don't play the game well. 
to me, it's, red, it's black and white. It either it is or it isn't. I don't do well in the in-between. In I, I don't do well in the politics. I, I never have. I, 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 I realize it for me, pastoring. And I know, I'm, I wouldn't pretend to get up there and say, well, I'm a great pastor. I don't necessarily, as far as the standard's concerned, I don't believe that I necessarily am. But I am smart enough to know for what God has called me to do, I need to pastor. Because my calling from God, now we've talked a lot about God's call in your life. God's will in your life versus God's call in your life. And you should know the difference now. You hear a lot of people don't know the difference. You say, well, I feel the will of God in my life is to be a pastor. Will of my God in my life is to be a missionary. No, no, we've talked about it before. The will of God in your life is never what you do. The will of God in your life is what you are in your own personal relationship with Christ. You know, God has a plan for every one of you. And this is burdensome to me like it is to Paul. But God's got a plan for every man and every woman that's saved in this church. He has something He wants you to do. But the bottom line is, that plan that He wants you to do is different from the will of God because the will of God is never what God wants you to do. The will of God is what God wants you to be. And I have never... Two people asked me this week, and I love them because it's the sincerity. I love it. I absolutely love it. So if you were one of the two people... Obviously, this is not a criticism. This is a attaboy. This is, this is what I want to hear. But they came in and they talked this week, and they, they were worried. They were worried about, how do I know that I'm doing what God wants me to do? How do I know I'm not going to miss God's plan for my life? Now, in their life, in their mind, they're looking where they're at, and they're coming through the Bible, they're learning some things. But you've got to love that. You've got to love the fact that there's somebody out there on planet Earth that is concerned that they don't want to miss what God's got for them. And I love that. And I told them. I said, you know what? In all the years I've been working with people and been in the ministry, in all the years that I've taught people the Bible and been around people, and I, I probably to the tune of, I don't know how many, tens of thousands, I've never seen a person who became what God wanted them to be, will of God, that ever missed doing what God wanted them to do. You realize when you work at becoming what God wants you to be, you don't have to worry about doing what God wants you to do. It'll happen. Just as natural, if you jump off, if you go downtown and go up to the federal building or the that big high building there, the courthouse or whatever it is, city hall. You go up top of that building and you jump off, you do not have to worry about and ask yourself, will gravity take over? <laughs> it's going to happen. You step off that roof, you ain't got a, well, you do have a care in the world, but gravity will not be one of them. Immediately, gravity will, and when you do what God wants you to be, when you work every day at learning your Bible, building that relationship, getting the things in your life organized and structured the way God wants them to be, you don't have to worry about doing the right things for God. You'll just be there. You'll just be there. There's things in life I'm not sure about. There's a lot of things in the Bible I'm not sure about. And you know if you've been around me long enough, I will tell you on Thursday night when, if, I, if I'm going into an area where I don't fully understand it all, maybe I can give you the concept, 
But I'll, I'll be up front with you. I am in no pretense that I know everything about the Bible. I had a guy one time, a little smart old guy, said, well, you think you know more about the Bible than everybody in the world? And I said, no, that's not the case, but I do know more about it than you do. Okay. I don't know anything more about the Bible. I really don't. There's lots of things I don't know about the Bible. But I'll tell you one thing I do know. I know complete in my mind what God has called me to do in my life. I know it clearer than anything else in this world. What God has called me to do is not necessarily pastor. But I have to pastor because I don't think I'm real good at that. But I have to do it so I have to put the people in my world that can help me with it to get to the point that I need to do. Because God's called me to do one thing and that is to take young men and young ladies, moms and dads, couples, grandmas and grandpas, anybody who wants to learn the Bible and wants to get the Bible down in their life where they can have a little bit of this battle before the Lord comes back, my job, I do it better than anything else I do. It's the only thing I know to do is to teach young men and young ladies the Bible and help them get to the point to take young Christians who have a zeal, but they have no knowledge, and then turn that into a zeal with knowledge. Because this concept of having a zeal but not according to knowledge is into God's people's lives too. Maybe not exactly the same way, but it's a damaging thing. I'm always looking. I'm always looking. I'm always looking for people who God can really use. I think, I, I call it in my own mind, people who have the basic tools. And, uh, you know, you can't do anything in life. If you're a mechanic in an automobile place, you will never be a good mechanic until you understand how to use the tools. If you're an electrician, You'll never be in a good electrician. Tell, trust me, sticking your fingers in a, in, a, in, a, in a circuit box is not the way to become an electrician. There are certain tools you need to have. There are certain things you need to follow. Just like if I went out and bought you all a piano, and you took it home, and you put it in your house, and you say, I got the most beautiful piano in the world. Bob bought me a piano. It's a grandbaby piano, and, uh, and it's a great thing. You know what? That does not make you a piano player but it does give you the tools to become one. See? My job is not to make you a great Christian, because I can't do that. My job is not to make you a pastor, because I can't do that. My job is not to make you a great soul winner or a great Bible student, because I really don't have the ability to do that. My job is to simply to give you the tools, and then you and God have to go from there. See? But that's what I do. That's what I do. That's what I do. And I, that's what God's called me to do. And I've learned over the years that, uh, that that's not for everybody. And, and, and especially in the day and age that we live in. You know, I went to jump school in, back in 1968, I think it was, 69. Jump school was three weeks where you learned to parachute out of airplanes. And uh, in our jump class, down at Fort Bragg, we had uh, 1,500 guys went in to jump school. And jump school is a, is a rough three weeks. First week, we lost over half the crowd. By the time we were ready to go in three weeks' time, we were down to 250 guys out of 1,500. Now, I'm not saying these guys were not good soldiers. They were good soldiers. But for what they wanted us to do, 
it took somebody that was better than just the average person. And you know what? In my ministry, I've always approached it the same way. I don't want anybody here to be just an average Christian. Because average Christians don't get the job done. Not today. Down at Fort Bragg, they have the, what they call the rapid deploy unit, 82nd Airborne, made up of the 505th, made up of the 507th. Those boys are ready to go in 24 hours notice. They can be anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world, dropped in any scenario, by land, by the air, or sea. They can be anywhere in the world in 24 hours or less to give any crisis in any world situation, and they can, they can be there to do what they need to get done. That's the kind of Christians I'm looking for. I've done a lot of study of military history. I think one of the greatest, when you go back, you know, we, we just celebrated the 60, 61st or 60th year of D-Day invasion in Normandy on June 6th. That's always been a great, that's always been a great inspiration to me because I've talked to so many of the guys that before the great D-Day battle took place on June 6th in the morning, they dropped in behind the lines about 1 o'clock in the morning, 12,000 of them, jumping into the night into occupied Europe with Germans everywhere not knowing where they were going. And the problem with that was is the fact that they were, they, because they, they, they were, they were misdropped all over the place. They all had specific targets, but most of them never made those targets. But I think one of the greatest things about it is the fact that, that it, it, it was more of a success than it ever could have hoped to be if they followed the plan. Because these paratroopers out of the 82nd, out of the 101st, they were trained as individual men to do what needed to be done. If there wasn't a lieutenant around, they'd grab a sergeant. If there wasn't a sergeant around, they'd grab a corporal. If there was no corporal, a PFC would take over and lead the battle. When they dropped into Normandy behind the lines, the Germans were in disarray. And the airborne guys are all scattered everywhere. They can't find their captains. They can't, find a, they can't even find their own units. You had 82nd and 101st airborne guys all coming together, and they were being led by a PFC. Because they were trained that whenever situation they found, that they would do what they had to do and not worry about waiting for orders to get it done. While the Germans, on the other hand, got whipped because of the fact they wouldn't counterattack, they wouldn't do anything because they couldn't get the headquarters for somebody to tell them what to do. I don't always want to have to be there to tell you what to do. I want to raise some of you up who have a zeal according to knowledge, not a zeal not according to knowledge, that you can get into any scenario you're in. And you don't need to call me on the phone to find out what you need to do. That you can operate independently. That if you find yourself out there someplace where you're hanging out there all by yourself and God brings up an opportunity for you to get in there and do something for Him, you don't have to look around to see who's behind you. You just get in there and do it. I'm always looking for people that have that ability. I've learned over the years that you probably got to go through, and this is the truth, this is the honest to goodness truth. In the ministry today, anyhow, you probably have to go through 20 people to find one or two who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna do anything. I, I'm just telling you. And there's a number of things that I look for. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just being honest with you. I look at these things as the missing ingredients of, of people today. Going back three or four generations. 
And uh, I just, I, I, you know what? I think, Bobby, and uh, uh, Candy, I think he, I think he's your husband and your dad. How old is he? 66. This, he probably has never missed a day of work in his life, has he? Steve Brackeen told me that he fell off a roof one day and broke his arm and then went to work the next day. We get a hangnail and we take two weeks off. See? Where's, uh, where's, uh, I think he's your dad, the farmer. He probably worked every day of his life. Huh. I met him. I, I love your dad and I love your dad. They're the kind of people that grew up, Doug, in a world where you went to work every day. You paid your bills. You loved your family. You raised your family. You worked hard. You didn't look for any handout from anybody. I bet you in both of your cases, and there's probably other ones here, but I met his dad and I met your dad. I bet you in, in their cases, if somebody would come up and say, here, here's a bailout to pay for your car, he'd say, no thanks, I'll pay for it myself. I bet your dad's the same way. Your dad lost a leg, didn't he? And he still farms, doesn't he? You see what I'm talking about? That element is missing today. It's missing today. And I'll tell you, it's, when I see it, when I see it in a young man or a young lady, boy, that's what I'm looking for. And believe me, 35 plus years in this business of doing what I do, I can tell in a heartbeat. I mean, it's so obvious. It's so obvious. I, I, look, for, I look for character. You know, character is a, it's a, it's a hard thing to find today. I look for, I look for integrity. You know, I, I love giving away, I love giving away my margin Bibles. We originally bought them to sell, but you don't sell very anymore because I keep giving them away. <laughs> but if you want to buy one today, I'll give you a deal on one. But anyway, <clears throat> I think the greatest gift I can give somebody as a pastor is a study Bible. Because I tell you, and if you look at them, they're those, now I know what's going to happen today. Everybody's going to be my best friend today and come up and want a Bible. That's fine. Chris just told me he bought another thousand. We buy them, we buy them like some of you buy cigarettes. We buy them by the case. <clears throat> I love giving a Bible out. I love the, I, I don't think I could ever give anybody a better starting point than to give you a Bible like the big people use. Because I'm telling you, you can go out and buy Ryrie Study Bible. You can buy Wycliffe Study Bible. You can buy Schofield Study Bible. You can buy this guy's Study Bible. You can buy everybody's Study Bible. But at the end of the day, all you're buying and paying for is somebody else's notes that they got from God. You need to get some of your own. You need to have your own Study Bible. And I love when I see somebody come in for a while and, you know, or, or come in and they act like they're really getting into it, you know, and I've seen them over there. I, I have honestly watched some of you stand over there looking at them knowing you didn't have enough money to buy one. And they're not expensive. They're $4,000. You can buy four or five of them. <laughs> You're laughing at me, but if I told you what it costs for that book to be there, ain't nobody in this world could pay for it. I've never understood that about pastors or churches. I know some pastors in some churches that if you have a problem in your life, they'll come in, they charge you for the counseling. Let me ask you something. How do you charge something to somebody when you got it free yourself? I love giving away. 
I've watched guys stand over there. I've watched them up and say, how much are those Bibles? And I say, oh, they're $40. I need to get me one here, and I'm going to save up and get me one. I said, really? Uh, and so then I go, I'll get them one. But I always say this to them. I'll give you a Bible, but I always say this to them. I kind of do it like this. I, I give, take this as the Bible. I take the Bible and I say, here, you want a Bible? Here, take it. I can take it. I say, I got one, one, one condition. They say, what's that? I say, you know what? I'm going to give it to you. I'm giving it to you for the purpose of investing your life in it. If there ever comes a time in your life when you don't love it anymore and you don't want to use it anymore and you don't want to get in it anymore, then you give that back to me. How many have I said that to in here that I gave you a Bible to? Oh, yeah, some are not even here. Everybody I say it to. You know what? You know what? I've done that for probably 15, 20 years. In 20 years, I've only had one person ever bring it back. I guarantee you there's a lot more of them that I gave them out that never used them and never brought them back. Only one person in 20 years brought it back to me and he said, you know what, I respect you so much and you gave me this and I've got to be honest with you. I, I, I'm not where I need to be with the Lord and I've got some problems in my life, so here, you said if I ever didn't do what's right, give it back, I'm giving it back. I said, you know what, son? I said, of all the people I've met in my life, I said that I've given them to, they're out in the world now, they never gave them back. You had the character to tell me that. You keep that Bible. Character. Integrity. Missing today. People use the church today. They use God today. I've had people in my ministry that went through a deep time in their life and they came uh, to church, got involved because they were going through some big deep time in their life, you know, and as soon as they got past that big deep time in their life and as soon as they were feeling good again, you never saw them again. You know why? Because they got no character. Church was something that they used. It wasn't something to change their life. It was something that they used. I've had people in my ministry over the years that came in and, and looked at the church as a business opportunity. They got some fast, slick business that they're going to put out. You know, it's always a Christian deal. And they come in there, you know, and they hook everybody up and suck everybody in. And then as soon as they work the deal, you know what they do? They go find another church. Now, oh, you know what? We're going to go over here. You know, it's a little more this and a little more that. You know, no, it's more business opportunities for you. Why don't we just get honest? No character. I look for character. I look for integrity. I really do. I look for people that will do the job that nobody else wants to do. This is all part of getting to the point in your life where you build yourself to the point where you get a zeal according to knowledge. I watch for young men and young ladies that will do the dirtiest jobs around here. I have to laugh, you know, it's been a year ago, a couple of years ago, you know. <clears throat> We all, you always have, in any church, we, we don't have many of them, and I don't think we have any at this point. I, 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 don't, I don't see any, but you always have in passing, in passing out. You always get a lot of wannabes. And you know what? Every Memorial Day, we have a Memorial Day picnic, and, uh, you know, Steve's not here. Doug's here. He's here. John Hill's here. He's here. Jimmy's usually out there. We start about 6 o'clock in the morning. John Reed's out there. We start about 6 o'clock in the morning, and we cook about 300, 400 pounds of ribs. Now, we do it on a little Bunsen burner. That takes a while. <laughs> You hear me teach the Bible one person at a time? Well, we do your ribs one rib at a time, okay? <clears throat> at least we're consistent. But we just work off of two grills. Now, it's a lot of hard work, and it's hot. I've watched them guys lose their eyebrows. <laughs> See? 
I've got my arm burned. We put the fires there so hot and they're working. They started there in the morning, you know, and we, and we just go and go and go, you know. And, and so we, this one year we did it, you know. And, and so we get to the park, you know, and everybody's coming up. Now, I got to tell you, you know, for me, Memorial Day picnic, there's a method behind it because we bring so many visitors. And I know that before I can teach you the Bible, the way to your heart is through your stomach. Because I know that most Baptist churches, when you go to, they have supper. Well, we're going to have a feast. It's like kind of Lot and Abraham, you know. We're going to have a feast. You get a little morsel of bread, you know. Or as one pastor says, you get tube steaks. Yeah, right. <clears throat> I've been in churches before where they say, come on over here. We're going to have food. We're going to have supper at the church tonight. Everybody come over. You get a dead little hot dog. Looks like it was in formaldehyde for a week, you know. And you get, you pay four bucks for a hot dog, a bag of potato chips, and Aunt Sally's, uh, potato salad that looked like Aunt Sally might have got it from uh, Uncle Judd over here, you know. You, and and it, 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 you know what? Hey, I learned this a long time ago. An army, run, an army runs on its stomach. And I'll tell you what, I love coming down there, and that's why I tell them. I, I see guy, your visitors come in, you know, and, and uh, they come down through there, you know, and I just pile on the rib. It's my way of getting to know them. Because you get 200 people out there, I can't get around everybody. But if I'm at one fixed spot and everybody's got to come through the food line, I get to talk to them. You know, and I'll, and I'll, and I, I, and I know how to play to these guys, man, because they're, they're all big eaters. But they think we're in a church now. We got to, you know, I just can have one, but I'd like to have three. See? I start with three. And then I say, You want another one? Oh, I, 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 put it on. Now, you're laughing at that, but there's a psychological thing to that. Because you get a man happy and fat when he eats, he's going to think good of you. I guarantee you, I could put three, four ribs on, put beans, get that plate up, and, and he looked at that, and he said, thank you very much. And I said, you know what? You're going to die and burn hell winter. Yeah, I know, but I'm going to eat first. <laughs> They'll take it. They'll take it. One year I had a guy here, you know, he, he didn't come to help. He always showed up late and always left early. You know, and it always, uh, you know, always wanted to pretend like, you know, and so he comes over, and we're getting ready to do that. We'd all work the morning. And I let the guys, you know, I follow the Bible. You know, the ox treadeth out the corn, he gets to eat. You cook ribs, and we were throwing ribs all over the place. We have rib fights. We throw it up in the air. You know, we dangle them in front of Doug's nose, make him run around the thing over here, you know, and we just have a great time. We eat. We're full by the time we get there. So I come over there, you know, and I'm getting it all set up, and I'm getting over there, and he, he comes over there, and he says, uh, he says, uh, why don't you let me serve out the ribs for you? Oh, yeah. You ain't there to cook. You ain't there to clean the mess up. You weren't there, but now you want to be here so everybody can say, oh, look at so-and-so. He's over there passing out. I said, on your way. You know what? I look for somebody who wants to do the job when nobody else wants to do it. I'm not, a, I'm not a general. I'm a field commander. I'm like Hal Moore. You know anybody know who Hal Moore is? Yeah, you do. You know who Hal Moore is? You know what his motto was? My boots are the first one on the ground and the last one off the LZ. That's me. That's me. I'm not a general. Generals plan battles. I wage battles. That's my job. And I'm always looking, like the Marines, for a few good men and women. So I look for people who have character, people who will do the, do the, do the dirty jobs. I look for people who, who uh, you know, get along with other people. I mean, the ministry, Romans 15:1 is simply this. Ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. I'm always looking for people. You know what? When I said that right now and I laid that out, I watched 10 of you verbalize it with your own mouth. You know why? Because you've learned that. 
I, I look for people the ability to forgive and not hold grudges. People make mistakes. I look for people, Christians ought to be able to, Christians ought to have one goal in mind. That is to solve problems, not cause problems. And that's what we ought to be. Now, I realize that sometimes you get into circumstances that through no fault of your own, you can't do it. You can't solve it. But you know what? In 99% of the cases, that's exactly what your attitude ought to be, even when you can't do it. And I'll tell you something else to look for. I look for courage. You know what? It takes courage for all of us to look in a mirror and face our weaknesses, doesn't it? Because every one of us have things that aren't good about us. And it takes courage to look into that mirror and say, you know what? I don't like that about me. I'm going to fix that. It takes courage then to do what you've got to do. If you got parent, if you're a parent, you got teenagers, you got young kids, you know what? Sometimes your kids have problems. Sometimes you have situations from, from split marriages or whatever, and you got to deal with situations that maybe, you know, that it's tougher to deal with than normal. And you know what? The bottom line is it takes courage to step up and say, you know what? I identify this problem. I'm going to solve this problem. And I'll tell you something else. It takes courage to face your adversaries. Every one of you that decide you're going to make that book the number one thing in their life and you're going to become what God wants you to be, there's going to be a price that comes along with that. I, guarantee, I can tell you that right now. Jesus himself says about the rich young ruler who wanted all this, but he never counted the cost. There's a cost involved. And that cost, if you're not careful, will wear you down. That cost, if you're not careful, will get to the point, and you're not, you're not staying on task, you're not staying focused, that cost will get you to the point where you'll just give up, and it'll be easier to go do something else and not pay the tab anymore. Let me tell you something. It costs something for you to get saved. There was a price for that. What makes you think that you're going to get saved, come to church, and not have to pay part of that price too? There was a price paid for this church to be here. What makes you think you can sit here and not pay part of that price or, not, or be exempt? You won't be exempt. If you're going to take a stand for that book and that in God and you're going to become the man or the woman God wants you to be and you're going to get a zeal according to knowledge and you're going to get that thing in your life the way it needs to be, let me tell you something. There is going to be a price that you have to pay. People are going to, they're going to assassinate your character. They're going to lie about you. They're going to, they're going to do everything in the world to try to destroy what God has got you doing in your life. The devil's main goal is going to make as much noise in the background as you can, as he can, to get you off focus of what God's caught you to do. It takes, takes courage to be able to stay that. But I think of all of these things, what do I've given you? One, two, three, four, five, six of them here. I think, but most of all, of all the things that I look for, and I look for character, I look for integrity, I look for those that will do any job that needs to be done, to get along with people, forgive, be able to move on, encourage, those are all vital things. But I think most of all what I look for, and it's absolutely necessary to build in you and give you that correct zeal, is the aspect of a teachable spirit. If you don't have a spirit that is teachable, you're not going anywhere. You're not going to accomplish nothing. Because I'll tell you what, that is based on the attitude of your heart or where you're at. And if you don't have that aspect, you simply don't have anything to work with. You know, in the ministry, I see young Christians, especially men, and it's not a bad thing. Men have this gung-ho zeal, and I like it. I'd, I'd rather have you a zeal that needs to be tempered than have no zeal that needs to be 
made. But Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5, 6, and 7, he said in verse 6, talking to young Timothy, he said, not a novice. That's a, somebody that's a, a new guy, somebody that just got saved, somebody that, that, that has, hasn't got their feet on the ground yet. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into condemnation of the devil. And of course, that's the problem right there, you see. That's a novice, has a zeal, but he doesn't have it according to knowledge. And what happens is, he gets lifted up with pride and he falls. And he's because he's unteachable. Let me tell you something. Knowledge without experience will always be a disaster. When I was taught growing up, I always taught that ministry was a sacred, sacred thing. I was just like everybody else. I had a zeal, but I had no knowledge. I was taught that, that there's no higher calling than the ministry of teaching people the Bible. And because there's no higher calling, there always has to be a higher standard. I sat under a man for five and a half years before I ever ventured into the ministry. And I didn't know what I was doing when I went into it then. But I had some experience under my belt. Because I had a zeal, but I had no knowledge. And I made myself, just as <coughs> Timothy made himself accountable to Paul, <coughs> I made myself accountable to him, and he brought me to the point where I got a zeal according to knowledge, and he took away the zeal that I had that was not according to knowledge. You see, zeal is a good thing. I don't want to take your zeal. I really don't. But what I want to do is temper your zeal with the principles of the Word of God, that you have a zeal according to the Word of God, not having a zeal based on a knowledge of the Word of God. That's the problem. And ladies and gentlemen, that takes time. That takes time. Now getting this knowledge along with this zeal, that's what the Bible calls spiritual maturity. Now I want to give you a great passage here. It goes right along with this. And I want you to turn over to John chapter 1 because if you're going to get a zeal according to knowledge, if you're going to grow to the point where you get to where God wants you to be, and you say to yourself, I can't say it for you, I have a teachable spirit. I'm going to get whatever i got to get. I'm going to change about me whatever i got to change. I'm going to take whatever I'm told that needs to be changed, and I'm going to work it through, and I'm going to do what i told to I pay my dues and figure out what God's got for me. I'm going to work at being what God wants me to be before I ever worry about what God wants me to do. Now, here's the great chapter. When I talk about a teachable spirit and the things that I look for, uh, this is what I'm talking about, getting a zeal according to knowledge. John chapter 1, verse 17, a very simple verse. <clears throat> For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The verse says that the law came by Moses. That would be the Old Testament. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now that's you and me in the New Testament. Now these are the two absolute ingredients you have to have to be teachable and get a zeal according to knowledge instead of a zeal not according to knowledge. Let's look at them. The two key elements. The first one is, is truth. Now you have to learn the Bible. There ain't no question about that. You get a lot of people running around saying, well, you know what, you, get a, you got a head knowledge about the Bible. Well, you need a head knowledge about the Bible, but it needs to be balanced because the Bible says that when Jesus Christ came, He came grace and truth, both of them. And the bottom line is this. You need to learn the Bible. That's truth. You need, to learn how to, you need to learn the Bible. You need to know what the Bible says. You need to know how the Bible lays itself out. That's the tools of being the man or the woman God wants you to be. That's truth. But then there's something else here. He says grace and truth. You see, truth is knowing the Bible, 
But grace is the ability to know how to use the Bible in any given situation. And that's what's lacking. I mean, I know, I mean, a lot, I, there's a lot of wannabes in the ministry. There's a lot of young men out there that want to be pastors but don't want to pay their dues to become pastors. There's a lot of people out there that they've got truth, but they don't know how to use that truth. And that's a very damaging thing because that leads to that pride thing that he talked about, and it leads to the fact that they have a zeal but not according uh, to knowledge. Truth is the fact that you need to know the book, and grace is the ability for you to know how to use the book in any given situation. There's a great principle in the Bible, and it's, it's so true. It says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 17, at the great supper of God, the valley of Armageddon, at the battle, that all the birds, and he talks about all the birds that come down there. And they're all unclean animals out of Leviticus chapter uh, 13 or 17. And when you come down through there, uh, there's a phrase that we use today that, that fits right back to that. And it's so true, it's so true. That old phrase is, birds of a feather flock together. You ever heard that? It's so true. It's so true. Your job is to not only learn the Bible, the truth. Your job is to get the grace to know how to use that truth. And of course, uh, I've, talked, I've talked to people all my life, little, little wannabes that talked about the fact of grace. And I'd ask them, I'd said, give me the definitive passage in the Bible on grace. They didn't even know it. You see, we get ourselves puffed up, don't we? We get ourselves to the place that we really think, well, look at me. And all the time we forget all the patterns and the principles in the Bible because, <clears throat> well, that's what he says, you know. He says, for I bear them record that they have a zeal, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. You see, pride leads to self-righteousness. And when you have pride and you have self-righteousness, I'll tell you what the third ingredient you have, you have an unteachable spirit. And you will not be able to be taught. <laughs> All my life. There's a guy over here pastoring a church over on the other side of Independence. <clears throat> <clears throat> I've known this guy since he was in high school. And I might as well tell you before I go any farther, he doesn't like me and I don't care too much about him. But the bottom line is this. This guy grew up in my ministry and he was the absolute epitome of what I'm talking to you about today. He had absolutely no teachable spirit. He was always the odd man out and always doing his own thing. And the bottom line was in all of these things, and you've you got to see the bottom line here. The bottom line is the fact that, that it's a situation where that they, they have a problem with authority. That's the bottom line in this. Somebody who is unteachable has a problem with any kind of authority. This kid had a problem with every authority there was. He had a problem with his with his own parents' authority. When he took a girlfriend and, and finally married her, he had a problem with her parents' authority. He'd been in every church around here. He had a problem. In, in every aspect, he had a problem with authority. And now he's pastoring a church. You know why he's pastoring a church now? Because he had problems in every church he went to and finally came to the, 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 the mindset, well, nobody can teach me the Bible because I know it all, so I'll start my own church. If you go downtown certain days of the week, you'll see him down there preaching on the street. And if you'd go over there and you'd talk to him about this, oh, he'd lay it out to you. I mean, all the women are dressed right. I mean, they got long dresses down to their ankles, you know. They all wear little hats, you know. 
And the bottom line is, if you go out and talk to him, he'd talk to you about that. He's out there preaching. He's got a church over there. He's probably up in the pulpit right now preaching. And you know what? His own kids hate his guts, and they run away from home about every 15 days, and he can't. Because you know why? Because that all follows the same pattern. Birds of a feather flock together. They all have the same basic fundamental problems. The first problem is terrible situations at home. Oh, they can minister to everybody else out there. They just can't minister to their own families. It's such a sad state, but that's where it's at. No accountability to anybody. I have another guy that I've known <clears throat> all for years. In fact, he, he stayed in my house when he first moved here from Ohio years and years ago. And he was a nice kid, but it became very clear that he had an unteachable spirit. Nobody could tell him what to do. He decided he wanted to be a missionary. So he goes to a foreign country to be a missionary and flops right on his face. Comes back to the States. About 11, 12, 13 years ago, 14 years ago maybe, he decided that there's no church. In fact, he was going to a friend of mine's church. That's over north. <clears throat> and now keep in mind, my guy is running about uh, 200 guy people in church, doing a good job. This kid has never built anything in his life. He's failed at everything he does. But he goes around telling everybody, God has showed me things that he hasn't shown anybody else. And he actually finds stupid people who are dumb enough to believe it. So he goes into my pastor buddy, who's running about 200 on Sunday. Got a good work. This guy, when, you, when he has church services, there's two chickens and a duck. I mean, he could call rule call in a phone booth. So he goes into my buddy and he sits down and he says, God has really told me to come and try to help you understand how to really minister to people. My buddy says, oh, then I can run three like you do? Arrogant. Unteachable. He's having church this morning, too. Been at church for 14 years. And you know what? He's running the same nine people today he won 12 years ago. He doesn't win people to Christ. He goes around saying to people in their churches, well, you know, your pastor really doesn't teach the Bible, and God showed me many things more than he showed your pastor. Why don't you come here, and I'll really show you the great truths of life. Yeah, and then you can be ten unteachable. All my life I've seen them. All my life I've seen them. It all comes down to the fact that a rejection of any authority in their lives and it's just the way that it goes. Let me tell you something. You find somebody in the last six years been five different churches and every time they've been there they caused a problem in those churches you've got somebody that's got an authority problem. You see in your life I not only want you to know the truth the book but I also want you to have the grace to be able to know how to use it in any situation. I don't want you just to be somebody who can spit out a lot of facts and figures. I don't want you to be somebody who can just get up and give all the genealogies and all the aologies of all the things that go on. I want you to be somebody that is sensitive not only because you have the truth, but you have the grace of God that enables you to use the truth that God has given you. That in any given situation you're in, just like the 82nd Airborne dropped anywhere in this world, in 24 hours and they can fix the problem. I want to be able to have God be able to drop you anytime, any place, anywhere. I think probably in all of our lives, the most tragic thing of last week in all of our lives, the single greatest tragedy in your life and my life last week, if what I'm saying is true and what the Bible's saying is true, then the greatest single tragedy in your life and my life last week was simply going through life's week without the ability of God dropping you in a scenario 
where he needed you. Let me ask you a question. Do you actually think in the world we're living in today that you went through a week last week that God didn't want you someplace, but you were just too busy doing your thing? You didn't have time to see his thing? That's us. That's us. I not only want you to know the book, but I want you to have the grace to know how to use the truth in any given situation. And dear people, that takes some time and spending some experience. It works real simple. I mean, you, you, you go through a process to learn the Bible truth. You get into a man's ministry who will develop you and put you with people in an accountable situation where you, you learn to use the truth with grace in a structured place, in a structured situation, and you stay with it, and you learn from it, and you take it from there, and you go to the point where God actually just molds you and brings you through what you're doing. And that's exactly what God wants you to do, and that's how he does it, learning grace and learning truth. Now, this lesson is absolutely vital for you to reach that level in your life. The ability to use grace and truth. And whether you know it or not, the model for this, and this is where we're going to kind of stop today and we're going to pick it up next week, but the model for this is Paul. Last Thursday night we talked about models. In fact, we've talked about it in the last couple Thursday nights. We've talked about models and how that models... Uh, really work to the point throughout the Bible to teach you how to do things. And we showed in question that, uh, about eternity how that the very models of the Bible answer the questions. But for you and for me of learning how to be grace and truth, to be how to become the man that God wants you to be and the woman God wants you to be, that you not only get the truth, but then you have the grace to be able to use the truth in any given situation, the model was Paul. Did you ever notice who, Paul's writings? Did you ever notice Paul's writings? Paul writes two components. He writes the seven churches. And in those writings of the seven churches, he gives them instructions as a church for what they're supposed to be doing. Then Paul writes three books to individuals. He writes a book to Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy. He writes a book to Titus. And he writes the book to Philemon. Sometime long before I ever showed up on planet Earth, great men who taught the Bible and help people learn the Bible. They figured out a lot before I ever figured it out. But somebody a long time ago, when they looked at Paul's writings, they looked at Paul's writings of the churches, and they said to themselves, these books are to the churches. Because every one of them starts out, with the exception of Romans, every one of them starts out to the churches. To the churches. So these books contain church doctrine. Then somebody else said, well, look over here. You got First and Second Timothy, you got Philemon, and you got Titus. Or Titus, then you got Philemon. Somebody said, well, those are three boys that Paul won to the Lord. And all three of those boys, if you study the context, are pastoring. So what are we going to call these? I know what we'll call them. We'll call them the pastoral epistles. They're the books written to people who want to pastor. And maybe you'll never pastor a church, but within this church, you ought to be pastoring somebody. You ought to be discipling somebody in time. You ought to be working with somebody in time. You ought to be using your pastoring skills at some point in time is what God wants you to do. And, of course, as you develop that and you realize that, you realize that these three books are invaluable. Absolutely invaluable. Absolutely invaluable. And you're going to find that in Timothy, the whole book of 1 Timothy, the whole book of 1 Timothy, 
is built around 12 charges that Paul gives Timothy. I'm not going to give them to you today. I'm going to give them to you next week. But the whole book of 1 Timothy is built around 12 charges that he gives young Timothy. And he says, if you want to be used of God, if you want to be able to minister the Word of God, if you want to be able to have grace and truth, and you want to have a zeal according to knowledge instead of a zeal not according to knowledge, learn these 12 charges. And the whole book of Timothy is built around 12 concepts that Paul says, get it. Then you come to 2 Timothy. And the whole book of 2 Timothy is built around one verse. I think it's verse 4, verse 6, and it talks about where he is to remember. And the whole book of 2 Timothy uh, carries that line of sight and that line of reasoning that he's supposed to remember. He's supposed to remember in chapter 1 the gifts that God has given him and the training that he's got from Paul. In chapter 2, he's to remember to hold the strong, excuse me, the sound words. In chapter 3, he's to remember that he's living in perilous times and he's dealing with perilous people. In chapter 4, he's told to remember to preach the word in season and out of season. Danny preached a great message a couple of weeks ago when I was in Ohio on that very thing, and I couldn't add anything to it. But the bottom line is that means be ready anytime, anyplace, anywhere. Get you an 80-second airborne patch and slap it on your Bible cover or on your sleeve and then say to yourself every day, God, drop me today wherever you want me to be. Put me in that big old spiritual C-130 and haul me up there and let me hook up and drop me wherever you want. Put me, have enough confidence in me to put me wherever you want me to be that I can do whatever God wants me to do. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Then he comes to the fact in, 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 uh, in Titus. And in Titus, he lays out the second greatest aspect of ministry. Because in Titus, the theme is stewardship. And you find out from Titus that there's seven things that you and I, as a child of God, are to be stewards of. And you know what one of them is? The grace of God. In fact, the word is manifold grace of God. Go ask your wannabe friend what that means when he's so big and high on grace. Ask him what it means to be a steward of the manifold grace of God. These are the things that we learn. These are the things that when you get into a church and you get committed to the point that you say to God, I'm going to, I'm going to be that person who you can use. I'm going to have the courage. I'm going to have the integrity. I'm going to have that teachable spirit. God, teach me how to deal with people. Teach me. Teach me how to have a relationship with you so I can go do whatever God's called me to do. Give me the ability to use grace and truth. Seven things that a Christian has to be a steward of. Then you get into Philemon. Philemon is a story very basically about a runaway slave. Philemon's a pastor. And Paul's in the Huskow someplace, and he's locked up down there in a jail someplace, and he meets a guy by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus is a slave. Man, you know, Paul is, he's a member of the 82nd Airborne, 505th. So he's realized he's been dropped in a scenario. He's in a jail with a guy named Onesimus, and what do you think Paul's going to do? trade recipes with him? Paul goes to work on him. He says, hey son, let me ask you a question. You're in jail, so I got a captive audience. Let me ask you a question. You died today, you know you go to heaven? Onesimus says, well, I'm a runaway slave. Runaway slave? What'd you run away for? Well, my master has given me all kinds of problems. Your master? Who's your master? My master's a guy by the name of Philemon. Philemon? 
I won Philemon to the Lord. He's got a church down here. You Philemon's servant? Yeah. You ran away from him? Yeah. You know what Paul did? Paul won him to Christ. Right in jail, won him to Christ. And then he told him to set up one of the greatest studies you'll ever find in your Bible. He told Philemon, he said, you know what? I'm going to, you go back to Philemon and you become the best servant you can be. And I'll tell you why. Because real freedom doesn't mean whether you're a bond slave or not. Real freedom is the fact that your soul's been set free from the sin of this world and whatever state you're in, therewith to be content. You know what that tells me? That tells me that that's a great story. You know why? Because you and I, if you're saved this morning, what rights do you have? What rights do I have? Who are you to decide what you do or what you do with your life? The day you got saved, the Bible says, what, know you not, you were bought with a price? You were knocked down on a slave block and you were bought and sold at Calvary. And you don't have any rights. Those rights belong to Him. Why, so, uh, maybe somebody should have told you that before you got saved. Maybe you would have just not gotten saved and been a lousy Christian and just been a good sinner. But that's what happens to God's people. We get saved because nobody blazes it out. We have these things where, you know, we'll just raise your hand and ask Jesus in your heart, oh, now you're saved. Oh, yeah, right. In the world that we live in today, right. You got somebody back there worshiping Buddha and, you know, and <coughs> I had a situation a while back where a gal was of another faith and another religion <coughs> and she come to the place where, you know, somebody wanted her Christ and didn't take the time to get into where she, where she was and she was a Far Eastern whatever and the thing was, she got saved and then and I talked to her the next day, you know, two weeks later, you know what she said? She says, I said, did you get saved? She says, I got saved. Now I've just added Jesus Christ to, to Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad and everybody else. And I thought, oh boy, that was good. That was good. I'm telling you. You got to have the truth, but you got to have the grace to use it. Boy, I'll tell you what. You and I are slaves. We don't have any rights. The day you got saved, you gave up your rights. The day you got saved, you basically signed a contract. Okay, you're going to take me to heaven. I'm going to get in the plan of God. I'm going to understand the plan of God. I'm going to give my life to you. And whatever you need for me to do, you got it for the rest of to the duration. I'm yours. And then a lot of us got saved and said, oh, second thought, you didn't read my fine print I wrote in down there, only on Sundays. The rest of the week I want to myself. Well, it doesn't work that way. You got three of the greatest books that were ever written. Because you and I all have a problem the moment we get saved. We get a zeal, but that zeal is not according to knowledge. And the way you get that zeal turned around that it is with knowledge is you get grace and truth. You get the truth of God's Word, and then you get the grace to be able to use the Bible in any given situation you're in. And that's how God brings you to the point where you can do it. And then you get into a church, you learn everything you can, you get everything that you can grasp, you build it into your life, and you work in your own personal relationship of working out your own relationship with God to be what God wants you to be. You never have to worry about doing what God wants you to do. Everything that I do, everything that I do, <coughs> is built on those two aspects. <coughs> I give you the Thursday night Bible study. I give you a Bible base. I give you the institute class. I give you a one-on-one -on -one time. I give you everything that you need and put you in discipleship. All of those things teach you the Bible. All those things teach you the Bible. All those things teach you the truth, the truth, the truth, the truth. You'll not learn grace from those things right there. you learn the truth. And when you get to a certain point, you know what I do? I pick you up and I put you with somebody else. I'll take you up as a couple and put you with another couple. I'll put you over here with somebody who's having some heartache, having some problems, and having some this. That's where you got to have the grace and use the grace with the truth to deal with them.
That's how it works. You think you just come down and I stamp on your forehead. Grace, 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 grace. I'm not going to give you grace. You're the woman everybody wants to sit next to on an airplane. <laughs> That's how it works. There's a process. The process is you learn the book and then through the ministry you get involved in somebody else's life and God requires you to use the truth in grace to deal with them. You can't just, you can't just deal with them like you do your own family. You say your own family has a problem, get over it. Your, only friend, your, your wife or your kids have an issue, you know what, Do, you deal with it. But oh, everybody else, I'm here to solve your problem. You can't, you've got to use grace and you've got to take truth and then learn grace in dealing with people's lives. You have to take their phone calls at 11 o'clock. You have to sit there for an hour and a half and listen to them go on about how their life's upside down. You need to take them through the little baby steps and that takes grace. Grace and truth. You don't get truth and get the Bible and then grace shows up someday. You get the grace by what you do in the ministry with the Bible God's given you. And that's why you have in every church. Every church, you have people who know the Bible, but they have no grace. They won't go past the point. You have a lot who have an unteachable spirit. You have a lot that go for a while, and they said, you know what? I don't, I don't care about those things anymore. I got my own life now. I got things going over here. I got all of this I'm going on. And you get all kinds of people. But in a Bible New Testament ministry, what it takes is men and women who focus and stay focused and realize there's a job to do. When they get saved, they get trained, they give their life to God, and they focus on two things. Learning the truth of God and then getting grace to how to use that truth. I have one rule when it comes to the Bible. It's really in life. I am the most open-minded person you ever meet in your life. My problem is, I know too much Bible. But I'm open to anything. People say, you're closed mind. No, I just have been there long before you got there and found out it was an empty street. When you look as closed mind, I'm saying, I've already been there, walked the street, bought the t-shirt, and it was empty. So, to me, it, I, I, I follow one rule. Whatever I believe about the Bible... Whatever I believe about God, whatever I believe about anything related to the Word of God, I will change it in 20 seconds, 10 seconds, 5 seconds. There's nothing in the Bible that I say, I just got to believe this. If somebody came down here and said, I'm going to show you to speaking in tongues as for now, and you ought to have them, I'd thank God I speak in more tongues than all of you. If somebody said, well, I'm going to show you the gift of healing and I'm going to give you the gift of healing and you're going to have the gift of healing and now you preached all these years, wrote a book against the charismatic movement and now you're going to come to the place where you're going to have to recant all that because healing is true. You know what? I'd be out of here so fast and I'd say to you, I was wrong. I'd tell you, healing is right, but I can't stay longer because you know what? I'm going to the funeral homes. I'm going to the hospitals. I'm going to spend the rest of my day raising dead people, giving eyesight back to the blind and I'm stopping deaf ears. I wouldn't go get a tent someplace and make you give me money. If I had the power to raise dead people, I'd be out there raising them today. I'd be getting me a newspaper, going down, this funeral home, that funeral home, 3 o'clock, I'd walk in at quarter to 3, stand in the back. <laughs> Let that soft soap preacher spew it out. 
And just as everybody's there and, and he says amen and the music comes up, you know, and the, and the preacher stands at the head of that casket and the funeral directors go down, you know, and they're going to have everybody out. And the family gets one last look. I'd be high-stepping down that aisle. Happy days are here again. I say, folks, don't despair. Don't cry. Don't weep. Watch this. Young man, arise. I said, young man, arise. You know, you're like a lawnmower. Come on, start. (laughs) You show me something that's real based on that book, I'll take it. I don't care what I've taught, what I believe. I'll dump it in five seconds when you show me the truth. Problem is, I know what the truth says. I'm not a guy you want to try to sell the Brooklyn Bridge to. I bought it enough. But you got to learn. You got to understand. God saved you for a purpose. You're sitting here for a reason. And God has one thing He wants to do He wants to impart His truth into your life. He wants to give you truth, and He wants to give you grace to use that truth. He wants you to learn it through a New Testament local church by a pastor who understands the New Testament principles. He wants you to learn it in a section, a, a system that he designed and set up and said, this is the way you do it. Nobody, nobody, nobody ever goes out to start a church. You're sent out to start a church. And the reason why you're sent out is because there's some requirements that need to be, that need to be addressed. And one of them is not sending you out with a zeal, but not according to knowledge. And there lies my burden. There lies my burden. You know, this probably is wrong. And I'm probably going to say this wrong. So I'll just tell you now so you don't have to take it wrong. But I am more burdened for God's people than I probably am for lost people. And that's a sad thing to say. But the truth of the matter is, if I get God's people get their head out of the rear end and start doing what's right, there'll be a lot more saved people saved. But oh no, it's about us, isn't it? It's about our problem. It's about my problem. It's about what I got going. It's about who I am. It's about how busy I am. All of my things I got to do. And one of these days, my friend, that judgment seat of Christ is going to crack the eastern sky and we're going to stand there before him and we're going to give an account of what we did with the truth and grace. It's all right to have a zeal, not according to knowledge. Everybody was there. I wouldn't even begin to tell you some of the absolutely asinine, dumb things I did when I was a young Christian. I broke into certain churches. Put tracks in certain places. I'd never do that now. I mean, we had little combat teams that dropped into places and did little things and, and all for the glory of God, you know, and put tracks here that when the preacher or whoever opened it up, whoo, he got the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what? And that was cute back then, but it was stupid. That's how God works. See, I was too young out of the military. I thought you still ran night commando operations against the other churches. <laughs> that was a zeal, not according to knowledge. <laughs> I have matured just a little bit. I've done every dumb thing there is to do. I was a guy in my life that's probably going to die and go to hell because of me. I think about him every day of my life. 
And he was a kid I went to high school with, and he looked up to me in high school. And I wasn't a Christian in high school. And years later, I run into him, and I was this hot zealot for God now. I had a zeal, but I had no knowledge. I knew all the Bible. You know, I'd been to, I, I'd, I'd been to, I'd been to, you know, through the Bible now and learned all the things about the Romans road and I knew all the, his kid knew nothing. And for 45 minutes, I beat this kid senseless. I didn't want him to get saved. I wanted to show him how much I knew. And that boy probably walked away from there and he's probably going to, if he isn't dead already, he's probably on his way to dying and burning in eternity. All because one guy with a Bible with a zeal, but not according to knowledge. But I learned. I told you, I, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm the fastest one in the slow class. You know, God fixed me with that. Every year at the Stark County Fair, our church would have a little booth. And we'd stand there and we'd ask people to take a survey. And it was a kind of a trap survey where you get in behind there and ask some general questions. And then you ask them if they're saved, you know. And I was, feeling my, I was feeling my oats. I'd already won two people to Christ last night. I was an expert. You talk about ego and pride being involved. Boy, I was there. And I walked in that night after work, you know, carry my Bible into the, into the fairgrounds, and I'm saying to myself, boy, I'll tell you what, I'm going to get me some more notches on my pistol tonight, you know. So I'm out there, you know, and here comes two guys walking down the thing there, you know, and I look like, oh, I can handle these dudes. So I walk out there and I say, hey, would you like to take a survey here? We're taking a Christian survey. Would you like to come back here and take it? And they said, Absolutely. So I go back there, you know, and I'm saying, oh, boy, here we go. Two more. I can just see it now. Up in heaven. You know? So I start to tell them. I said, I go down through the little list, you know, how old you are, da, 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 where you're born, what do you think it is, where you think that. And then finally, <coughs> I, I come down to the clincher question. If you were to die today, do you know you'd spend eternity in heaven? And what I had mistakenly gotten a hold of, or God orchestrating his events in my life because he knew I needed a good whacking, and can I just say this, and then I'll, I won't cuss anymore uh, through the rest of the service. <laughs> Sometime when you have a zeal and an ornicular knowledge, the best thing for you is a good butt kicking. I wasn't really cussing. Yeah. I spelled it. It's not B-U-T-T, -T, it's B-U-T. But getting a kicking, see how it works that way? Anyway, so I had two, all of a sudden, when I am, got my Bible open to Romans 3. And I, this time I'm smart. I know the Romans Road, the Matthew Turnpike, and the Colossians Highway. I've got it all, man. Except I got a hold of two Jehovah's Witnesses. For the next hour, they beat me senseless. They ripped me to shreds. When I said, you know for sure you've been saved, the guy says, saved from what? And I said, saved from hell. He says, what's hell mean in the Greek? Hell? <laughs> you know? <laughs> For the next hour and a half, they ripped me to pieces. I was way in the Goodyear blimp. I came out deflated, broken. And I'm walking back to my car, just as clear as I'm standing here this morning. And God said to me, feel like you're still a big boy now? He said, you know what, son, you better learn something. You're doing all right, and you're a good kid, and you got some things I can probably use, but you better get one thing straight. You better not just know how to Paul Parrot what somebody else says. You better learn why things are the way they are in the Bible. And that night I went home, and I made up my mind. That'll never happen to me again. I was arrogant. I was wrong. I was prideful. I had a zeal, but no knowledge. 
And what God did with me, he put me in a dogfight with two Jap Zeros that turned inside of me, turned up over me and come out of the sun at me and shot my tail feathers off. That was 35 years ago. Every time I go home from Ohio, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I go looking for him. <laughs> where are you at now? Mm, come on, I'll show you where I'm at. Mm, come on, where are you at? Want a dog fight again? Hey, the greatest lesson I ever learned in my life. God wants to use you. We have the greatest people in the world. I have never seen more people who have more ability to be the right kind of men and women, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, to be used of God in these last days. But I'm telling you, you've got to take that zeal according to knowledge without knowledge and turn that around to a zeal with knowledge. You've got to understand that I teach you the truth, but in ministry you learn grace to use that truth. And the reason why people go around and say, well, that church is all about truth, all about truth, is because you never stuck around long enough to get in the ministry to see how grace was used because you're a wannabe. And you don't, you, you don't want that. I don't want that. Greatest burden in my heart is for you people who are saved sitting here this morning to be everything God wants you to be. Just like Paul. You know why? Because Paul knew what was coming for Israel. And I know what's coming for the church, the judgment seat of Christ. Next week, I'm going to walk you through five things that he gave these two, three boys. Five things that he gave them that if you get them down, you're on your way. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you.